This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Armand Childers and this is the New Books Network. Um, I have the pleasure of hosting Marlene Schaeffers today, whose book Voices That Matter, uh, Kurdish Woman at the, at the Limits of Representation in Contemporary Turkey, just recently came out of uh, University of Chicago Press. Hi Marlene. Hi, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. I'm very excited to be talking to you today um so before we get get into the book can we uh, can we get to know you a little bit yes of course sure um so my name is Malene Schäfers um it's uh, as I said I'm really you know excited uh, to be on the podcast today and um I um have a background in anthropology I'm currently an assistant professor in cultural anthropology at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Um, I should also say perhaps that I also have a background in history, actually. So I studied history as an undergraduate and I did a master's degree actually in Ottoman and Turkish history. Um, But eventually I ended up uh, doing anthropology, uh, quite happily so, I should say. And um, I did a a PhD in the UK and have been engaged in, in anthropological research ever since. Uh, yeah, great. And I, I didn't know you studied history, actually, which is funny because I've known you for a while. <laughs> and how did this book come about? So this book basically is the um, the outcome of or it's based on ethnographic fieldwork that I did um, for my dissertation project. And for that fieldwork, um, uh, I went to uh, or I, I worked in the city of Wan in Eastern Turkey, or it's also known as Northern Kurdistan. And during my time in the field, I worked with a group of Kurdish female singers uh, called Dengbej in Kurdish, who had just started organizing, organizing themselves to set up a civil society organization um, when I arrived in one in the summer of 2011, so at the beginning of my fieldwork. 
And these were mostly middle-aged to elderly women who were extremely keen on asserting their presence in public, even though most of them had actually quite horrific stories to tell about both political and gendered forms of violence that they had experienced for wanting to raise um, for wanting to raise their voices in public and, and perform um, their singing in public. And so both their Kurdishness and their gender meant that their voices had been, you know, suppressed, silenced and denied um, for a very long time. And yet here they were, you know, despite all this, um, all these stories of violence and suppression, having just founded this civil society um, organization for Kurdish female singers and insisting really that their voices should matter and that they wanted to raise their voices in public. And the book... um, is really an attempt to understand and also honor that immense desire for voice um, on the part of, of the women that I encountered during my fieldwork. And instead of assuming that desire for voice, you know, that I observed on the part of these women to be simply sort of naturally given, the book in a way asks what animates this desire or what motivates this desire. So how come the voice has become such an appealing object in the contemporary world particularly for people who have historically been marginalized and whose voices have not been heard very much. And I think that this has, you know, this desire for voice um, and its value has much to do with um, how we understand the voice um, today um, in many contexts as a sign of empowerment and agency, um, not just in Kurdistan or in Turkey, but, but globally. So, you know, think about, I think we all know these familiar Um, refrains about, um, you know, you need to be vocal, speak up, um, you know, you need to voice your opinions, your ideas, your emotions. Um, I think these are all very familiar terms to us, um, but that have a particular influence on how we understand the voice and that link it with this idea of, you know, having a voice means having agency and being present. And so the book really tracks how such an understanding um, of voice on the one hand animates all these new desires and imaginations and aspirations, Um, But on the other hand, how it also creates new contestations and new anxieties, new vulnerabilities. Um, And so um, in a way, the book really, you know, kind of tries to critically examine this contemporary politics of voice, um, showing that, you know, when marginalized or quote-unquote subaltern people actually raise their voices, it's not always that straightforward path to liberation or emancipation that we sometimes imagine. Yeah, and I mean, it was very interesting to read some parallels between your book and my dissertation research where, uh, I mean, speaking about sexuality has the same kind of connotations of like uh, asserting agency, for instance. Definitely, yeah. yeah, That was very interesting. And it's, I mean, it's a beautifully written book. So, I mean, thanks. Congratulations. (laughs) It was was such a a lovely read. and can you can you tell us a bit about the Dengbez tradition, maybe? Yeah. Uh, because I mean, I I mean, I heard Dengbez in the Arabic where I'm from, uh, but I mean, there are similarities, but also these are women Dengbez, which I've never heard before. Yeah. So can you tell us about this? Yeah, of course, sure. So Dengbez um, means literally um, the so it, it's a compound um, made up of two words, Deng and Beige, and Deng means voice in Kurdish. It also means sound. Um, and beige means the one who tells or the one who pronounces. And so Dengbej is the one who kind of tells with uh, her or his voice. And Dengbej, it's a um, 
it has become this very uh, broad term, but it describes sort of a broad tradition um, of oral history telling uh, and oral literature. So it's not exactly, it's a form of melodized speech. So it's, it's sung in a way, it's melodized, but it's not necessarily the same as music that you would listen to for entertainment. So it's not the kind of music that you would turn on at a wedding to dance to. But Dengbej is really more a form of, of history and storytelling. So it's it's a kind of, um, so Dengbej would sing repertoires that people normally sit um, and enjoy to listen to. And they're also, what's really important is that it's mostly non-fictional accounts. So it means that the stories that Dengbej tell uh, or that they sing about, they are non-fictional. They're taken to be truthful accounts, often of historical events. So you have a lot of repertoires, a lot of songs that tell of, for instance, tribal battles uh, between different Kurdish tribes in the um, 19th century, for instance, or encounters between the Ottoman army and a Kurdish tribal leader, um, you know, 100 years ago. Um, so you have a lot of historical events that are um recounted by Dengbej. Uh, or, for instance, you have accounts of natural disasters, earth earthquakes, this kind of thing. You also have a lot of love stories. So a lot of accounts of love stories, interestingly, often between um, a, a Kurdish um, Kurdish and Armenian um, trans-religious sort of love stories. Often, fail. So it's also a genre that's by nature tragic. So the love stories, they always fail. It's always failed love, failed romantic love. Um, so... Um, and and it's a so in the sense because it's a, a kind of non-fictional uh, form of storytelling, people also use it to um, to transmit personal experience. So they 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 sing about their own experiences, stories that they have encountered, um, and especially women. And here, you know, the gender difference comes in. So especially women use it a lot to talk also about their personal um, experiences, emotions. Um, personal situations. Um, this is not something that men will never do, um, but it's sort of, um, it, it's it's a slightly sort of gendered way in which women repertoires can be more personal. They can be more, not more emotional necessarily because, you know, as I said, it's a really tragic genre. So there's a lot of suffering um, in, in that genre in any case, even when, when men perform it. Um, but it's interesting that also when men perform these, these repertoires, um, they will often cite women's voices. So often you have a character in a story that's a mother, for instance. And it's often that, that female character that's the one that expresses a lot of the suffering um, and, um, and the tragedy is often expressed by women's voices, even when it's a man who is performing the song. Um, so in that sense, there's definitely a gender dimension um, in these repertoires. Um, and what's also important to know is that Dengbej's and their repertoires have in recent years really come to be celebrated as symbols of authentic Kurdish culture and heritage. And so there has been a lot of, it's driven by a lot of anxiety that these repertoires represent Kurdish history and they represent Kurdish culture and that they're that they are in danger of being forgotten um, because the older generations are dying out essentially and it's not necessarily transmitted to younger generations. There's also this idea that it preserves Kurdish language um, because, you know, there haven't been you know, a lot of Kurdish archives. There hasn't been the chance to transmit a lot in written form. So oral forms of transmission have been really essential for Kurdish history and culture. And so in recent years, there has been a lot of activism trying to record Dengbej's voices and really archiving their repertoires in order 
to kind of preserve um, the culture and the heritage and the language that people see as being embedded in these repertoires. So that's also really important for my book project because it gives a new kind of value to these voices um, and that makes them particularly desirable. But that also creates a lot of conflicts and contestations around these voices that have become suddenly kind of imbued with this new value. Mm -hmm. And maybe maybe for those of our listeners who don't know the genre, we can uh, put in the podcast notes link to your website where there's, as far as I am, an archive. Yeah, something by songs. Exactly. Yeah, I have some on my website that people can listen to, and there's also lots on YouTube. I mean, um, yeah, t- definitely people can can sort of you know uh, jump into this, and you can spend hours listening uh, to Dangerous <laughs> if you if you want to. Definitely, Great. we'll do that then. Um, and how did you uh, how did you decide to work on work with like Dangerous women in your field research? Yeah, how did your path took you there? Yeah, so initially I was um, kind of quite fascinated by, um, first of all, the fact that, as you said, you know, Dengbejs are mainly known to be men, and a lot of people don't know that they're also women Dengbejs. And I, you know, I had always been, as a foreigner, people had kind of, you know, told me, oh, you have to listen, if you're interested in Kurdish culture, listen to Dengbej's or, you know, go to this Dengbej performance. And when I encountered these women, I was like, hold on, nobody ever told me that they're also women. Um, So, you know, what is this all about? Where do they come from? And how come nobody kind of ever mentions the women that are also involved in this? So this kind of was my initial fascination. But then I was also um, kind of very interested initially, really, in how these repertoires were a means of transmitting particular kind of stories. So I was really more interested in what was being told in these repertoires and exactly what are the gender differences. Um, And um, also because these are repertoires that because they um, recount, you know, personal experience, you have a lot of... um, repertoires that also talk about recent history, about um, the war and the armed conflict that has been uh, raging in the Kurdish regions of Turkey for the last 30, 40 years. So initially, I was really interested in these repertoires as forms of kind of testimony and and witnessing violence and oppression and the specific sort of gendered take on that from the part of women. So I was really more interested, in a sense, in the content. Um, But eventually I realized um, that the voice didn't always function in these repertoires the way that I expected it. So women were not simply voicing kind of only their own suffering or their own experiences, but they would often also voice, in a sense, the suffering experienced by others, often by men. Um, And so I realized that the relation between voice and self was rather complex, which made it difficult to assume that the women you know, that I encountered, that they use their voices as simply a kind of straightforward means of self-expression or as a kind of personal testimony. And this really pushed me to think of the voice itself as an object that needs ethnographic attention. So not simply what voices say, but really the voice itself, um, rather than, you know, sort of assuming that it's this inconsequential channel through which just information is transmitted. It made me realize, oh, hold on, maybe I need to actually, you know, look at this channel through which, you know, all this content is is transmitted. And so 
I think eventually then, you know, a lot of reading and thinking went into this, but eventually I was like, oh, okay, hold on. The voice really is not, I think we, we, it's so natural to us to use our voices, right? That it becomes this naturalized object that we don't give that much thought to actually. Um, but I think, you know, what, what then eventually I came to realize is that, you know, that we think of the voice as being somehow naturally this means for us to express our inner selves and our inner emotions. That's actually culturally and historically and politically constructed. Um, and it's not always, it doesn't have to be like this. Um, but once it is like this, it also, the way in which we construct the voice has specific effects. And this is really what began to interest me in the way in which, you know, how has the voice been constructed? How are these constructions changing and what effects does this have socially, politically, um, culturally? Um, yeah, basically. And I mean, it is really fascinating to go through this book and see how carefully you attend to voice itself and what it does, and as you call it, the social the social labor it kind of carries over. Um, and I mean, I, I I'm not someone who is well versed in uh, linguistic anthropology, but like, how does your work speak to that field in that sense? Yeah, I think um, I mean, I'm also not trained as a linguistic anthropologist, and sometimes. It feels like linguistic anthropology is its own little world and it has its own code. And it's sometimes, you know, you need to do a lot of code switching to uh, to be able to to get into linguistic anthropology. So the book is not written necessarily as a book of linguistic anthropology. Um, I don't think I'm you know, versed enough in linguistic anthropology, but it definitely borrows a lot from linguistic anthropology. And just reading linguistic anthropology has really helped me to come to an understanding of voice uh, or to defamiliarize myself, you know, and, and assume, not assuming voice to be this just naturally given thing. And it, it kind of sen has sensitized me to, to pay, paying attention to how the voice works, what it does, and also really to look at, and this also is the same actually with um, ethnomusicological literature, um, which similarly, I'm not trained as an ethnomusicologist and, and my book definitely is not an ethnomusicological book. I think ethnomusicologists would find a lot missing in the book. But it, reading a lot of ethnomusicology has made me, and linguistic anthropology has allowed me, I think, to um, really look at, not just as the voice as, you know, something that transmits content, but really look at the voice as form or look at, you know, the, the poetics of the voice and the aesthetics of the voice, the sound of the voice, um, and really kind of interrogate um, what that means and what kind of effects a voice can have because of a specific way in which how it sounds or how it is used by people um, and really get away from this kind of understanding where we immediately take the voice as, okay, having a voice means you have agency, which is a very symbolic understanding of the voice, you know? You make Im immediately kind of, you connect voice to agency empowerment. Voice becomes a bit of an empty shell. But once you, you know, pay attention to the, the form of the voice and the sound of the voice, it's poetics. You know, you, I think you can, you can defamiliarize yourself with some of these kind of very common sense assumptions we have about the voice. And that, in that sense, linguistic anthropology and ethnomusicological literature has been really, really useful for me. To, to be able to do that for myself and then also hopefully transmit some of that to the reader. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. No, I mean, as, a, as someone who has read very little linguistic anthropology and ethnomusicology, this book to me read as a book in linguistic anthropology and ethnomusicology. <laughs> Um, and I mean one of the things that's really that was great about the book was that I mean I also thought I mean usually I mean in sexuality studies this is about visibility right like how coming out and visibility and it's it doesn't matter how how you're visible but then what you do in the book very well is to show it sometimes it doesn't matter what the voice say but how it says it Yeah. And yeah, it's 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 really uh, to me a wonderful uh, revelation, and and you also talk about the social labor as a, if I can go back to what I was saying, like social labor voice. Can you tell a bit about that and what do you mean by the social labor? Yeah, sure. Voice? So, um, social labor voice is a term um, that allows me precisely um, to highlight, you know, what I was just saying, to move away from this understanding of voice as simply an, in itself an inconsequential, insignificant channel for communication, um, just a means to transmit content. Um, but instead, really, it's a, it's a term that I use to bring into view what voices do apart from just saying uh, or transmitting a specific content. Um And and in that way, it's this is important not just because it's interesting, you know, how voices sound and and what kind of things they do, but I think it's it's important because precisely these assumptions about what I was saying in the beginning that we so naturally take the voice to be an index of agency of empowerment um, of the self and of its of its will, um, you know, everything that comes across in these um, these terms of you know, be vocal, speak up, use your voice, um, you need to have a voice. Um, This is this understanding relies very much on um, not paying attention to the form of the voice, but it relies on basically, you know, just assuming that the voice itself is inconsequential and that what the vo voice says matters more than how it says that. Um, and so, in order to um, kind of um, make room, in order really to turn the voice into an ethnographic object um, and move away from this understanding that immediately connects voice to agency, self, presence, and so on. That's why I think it's really important to deconstruct, um, uh, to look at the social labor voice and to look at its form and its sound and its acoustics, its poetics. Um, and so, you know, just to give you to give you an example of, you know, how, how, how this might look like. Um, so, for instance, in the book, I look at how um, when you look at these traditional, more traditional repertoires of Dengbej singers, you see that there is um, an enormous amount of kind of energy that goes into vocal elaboration. So there's definitely, a, you know, it, it's about telling a particular story. So it's about transmitting content. But there's also a lot of energy that goes into vocal elaboration. And that vocal elaboration serves to transmit emotions and affects to listeners. And often listeners, you know, a good dengbej is somebody who makes you cry. So um, here the voice and its elaboration, like really working with a voice. And this is something that I think singers probably in a lot of, you know, that's not just true for Kurdistan, but, you know, an opera singer, you know, might 
might work in the same way where really like working on the voice and elaborating your voice is able to kind of connect um make affects and emotions circulate amongst listeners and audiences um beyond sort of the boundary of the individual subject and you know beyond um where the content itself might not necessarily be of of the the most important thing um and so this is one thing that I note, the way in which in these more traditional repertoires, we really see the voice being used um, not just to transmit a spe- specific story, but to make affects and emotions circulate and um, to really kind of be able to share pain and suffering in a collective way. But then when you look at um, what I also see is that Kurdish repertoires, these repertoires are changing um, in what I think is a is a response to the demands of these contemporary politics of voice that can only read voices as politically significant when they clearly express, you know, the interiority of a bounded individual. It's only when the voice expresses yourself and your opinion that it becomes a voice that's politically legible, that, that matters in a political sense. And so I think what you see in newer repertoires um, uh, more recent repertoires of um, of Ding Beige, but also other singers, is that the voice is much much more tame in a sense. Like it's less elaborate. It it's um, it becomes the, the intense kind of elaboration is often what younger people also find kind of boring and 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 weird. Um, and the voice becomes much more really in these more recent repertoires. You see that the voice becomes much more kind of um, focused on transmitting. The content, which is often much more about the personal self of the person who is actually performing, whereas a lot of the, the traditional repertoires, they, you know, they tell about suffering, but not necessarily the suffering of the personal suffering of the singer. Um, it's often all very intricate stories that have, you know, all kinds of crazy things happening a lot of tragedy, um, but it's not necessarily very personalized. Whereas I feel in newer repertoires, you see how the voice becomes much more simple, less elaborated, and the focus becomes much more on transmitting a certain type of content, which is much more tied to the emotional, personal self. And so I think this is really a response in some ways to these contemporary politics of voice that can read a voice as a voice that sort of matters in this political sense, only when it is a voice that expresses the self and the interiority of the self. So I think you can really, by sort of tracking how the form of the voice, its poetics is changing, you can really see how that um, how we, how we that kind of creates also new understandings of the subject, of the self, of the community. Um, and this is really something that the, book's in a, that the book in a way tries to do. So kind of the liberal conceptions of, of the self is catching up but the new generation. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious it's not a it's not a linear transition or anything, yeah, and yeah, yeah. and these old repertoires remain immensely popular, you know. Um, so people, um, are really enjoy also listening to to some of the older repertoires. But you can definitely see that that there is some change happening, um, and that people's also aesthetic sensibilities in a way are changing, and what is considered a good voice is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, which um, which which has been interesting actually to track also when you compare um, older and newer generations of Deng Beige, how they are evaluated often quite differently. Um, and so, yeah, I think also that there's new ideas about what's a, what a beautiful voice should be, uh, which is a lot cleaner, I think, nowadays, um, a lot more tame, like the voice is a, a bit more tame, you know, than I think it used to be in, in the past. 
And I mean, as far as I could track down in the book, you talk about the relationship between raising one's own voice to, I mean, in different chapters, like to agency, resistance, healing, authorship, and regimes of perception. Can you tell us a bit about this complex relationship and how these different kind of uh, tropes uh, are uh, becoming visible? Yeah, sure. So, um, this you know, it's a lot of you know different terms that you that you just mentioned and that also come up in the book. But I think in some ways, um, they're all perhaps we can think of them as sites where we can track these reper- repercussions of these liberal assumptions about voice as an expression of of self and interiority that I that I was talking about. So you know, you mentioned agency. So you know, once my voice is understood as sort of naturally expressing myself, my my opinion, my will, then it becomes an index of my agency. So having a voice means that I have agency, but it also becomes, you know, a means of resistance. So resistance is another trope, of course, um, resistance to to regimes or to to for to powers that seek to kind of limit my my agency and my will um, so I think the two are, are very much linked um, and this is you know why I think also the voice is so crucial for political campaigning for um, for political um, activism today um, and also feminist activism so obviously so I write about Kurdish women and we know that you know this there's this very strong um, trope about Kurdish uh, about Muslim women in particular being silenced lacking a voice and we see that a lot of feminist activism has focused on you know um, either giving voice but also encouraging you know, Muslim women, for instance, to raise their voices, to speak up, to be vocal. Um, and so I think we can really see and and to resist, quote unquote, resist patriarchal oppression, for instance, by raising their voices. So we can see how, you know, this idea, a specific idea of the voice really guides a lot of political activism um, and campaigning. And I'm not saying that this is necessarily wrong. I'm just saying that this is a very specific understanding of the voice and that this probably wouldn't have made sense a couple of hundred years ago when maybe, you know, people didn't have this understanding of the voice. So I think, it, you know, we need to really understand how this kind of political activism around the voice is very much situated and, and is tied to um, to specific understanding of voice. Um, you also mentioned healing. Um, so this is, I think, another, um, the book doesn't go into the, that much detail on the healing part, but there's a lot of in, excellent literature also written um, about this, um, the way in which the voice is absolutely has been central to a lot of therapeutic discourses and practices where there's this immense um, uh, emphasis on, you know, you need to talk about your suffering, your worries, your anxieties, you know, the whole Freudian psychoanalysis is all about sit down on the couch and talk, (laughs) right? And so it's all about using your voice to... um, to, as a means of eventually healing or also reconciliation, so in a more kind of conflict um, studies kind of um, setting. Um, so, you know, I think we we are kind of, um, at the contemporary moment, we find ourselves surrounded by, you know, all these, um, by, by these encouragements to raise our voices, you know, in order to heal, in order to gain agency, in order to become politically uh, significant. So the voice is really central in, you know, once you start 
you know, tracking it down, you see how it's really central to a lot of um, contemporary kind of political and social sites. And the book, in a way, kind of shows how, you know, once you really start focusing on the voice, how you can kind of track down what it does in these um, different sites and, and what kind of social labor, um, to use the, the term that we were talking about, the voice um, does in these different settings. Um Another term you were mentioning, or that I'm mentioning in the book, obviously, is authorship. Um, and so authorship, I think, becomes relevant um, because, you know, the voice has be, is, is this desirable and valuable object in a way because it carries all these promises, these promises of agency, empowerment, healing. And so, um, but once, um, once it has all this value you know, you start having questions about who do these voices belong to? Who can claim the value that these voices kind of accumulate? Um, and who should be um, who should be the owner or the author of these voices? And um, in the book, I, I explore this or I, I kind of started thinking about it because it, I was sort of struck by how um, the women that I worked with were extremely keen on kind of claiming that they were the authors of particular songs and they would have even fights about, no, this is like my song or this is her song. Or, um, and it's interesting because in the past, a lot of these songs would have simply been sort of collectively owned and practiced. So they would have been transmitted from generation to generation, from Dengbej to Dengbej. But there was not a lot of kind of investment in who does it specifically belong to, who is the author. But so I was kind of struck by how, you know, a lot of the women that I worked with were really kind of um, invested in this question of authorship um, and ownership. So the, the two of them kind of go together. And I think, you know, the kind of the way that I interpret it is that, you know, this, this insistence on authoring and owning particular voices, particular repertoires, I think has much to do with the way in which particularly the voices of Deng Beige, as we were also talking about, have in recent years become immensely valuable as symbols of Kurdish heritage, of Kurdish culture. And, and you can really see how women in specific, um, specifically try to insert themselves into these circuits of value that have come to circulate around the voice and that the, vo the voice has brought. Um, and they really try to kind of step into that value and and make a, a claim to to part of that value that is, has come to circulate and that has come to attach to the Kurdish voice um, in contemporary Turkey. Um, and so authorship is really a key trope here. Um, and um, and so I think this kind of also shows you how once the voice becomes this desirable valuable object, it also creates a whole lot of conflicts and contestations that come with the kind of value that is attached to the voice. Thanks for yeah that uh, the complex answer to this complex complex question. Also, as you were talking, um, I mean, I was struck by this idea of um, you you said like how feminists kind of uh, kind of give giving voice is a uh, is a concern for feminists. But then I thought about this um, how this is also a very much uh, a blood trope in anthropology itself, and like how as if giving voice to disenfranchised communities automatically almost help the said communities. But yeah, and I mean, your, your, your book definitely complicates even that relationship. I'm yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot to be said about how voice works in anthropology and how anthropology exactly has kind of seen itself as, um, historically has seen itself as 
giving voice to perhaps marginalized communities that has obviously come under critique. Um, there's a lot of, we see a lot of experimentation with kind of polyphonic writing, multi-authorship, co-writing. So I think all of that, in a way, are responses also to questions about how voice functions um, in anthropology, of course. Um, so I think it's definitely important to also think about um, and how how voice functions in anthropology and also perhaps to begin to think about, because also in anthropology, we kind of assume that the voices of our interlocutors are expressions of their selves and their opinions and their desires and their wills, right? This is what our whole enterprise in a way relies on. We go and talk to people assuming that their voices will kind of represent who they are. And I think, you know, it might also be worth thinking about that assumption and and, and what that means for our practices of fieldwork um, and, and our pra- methodologies of research. So I think there's definitely repercussions um, for uh, not only the politics of representation, but also really kind of how we understand the voices of the people that we work with. Mm-hmm. And that's why maybe Malinowski says, uh, listen to what they say, but also look at what they do. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Um, and what is your what are you working on nowadays? What's it, what's the next project? The next project, yeah. There's always a next project. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> or several, or, um, but yeah. So I mean, actually, so th- what I didn't talk about much now is, but perhaps an interesting point also to mention is that the the kind of the Dengbeige repertoires um, are actually quite close to, um, is in, in the way that they sound and the, the kind of structure they're close to, some of them at least, are close to funerary lamentations, um, which is also why this is these genres are, you know, sort of full of tragi- tragedy and suffering. Um, and this is also makes them specifically gendered uh, repertoires because lamentations are typically sung by women. Um, and so I've actually also become quite fascinated with how in these repertoires, questions of loss and absence are kind of negotiated. Um, and so... In my next project, um, I'm hoping to go further in this direction by really studying questions surrounding death and afterlives, um, broadly speaking, um, in the context of um, of the ongoing um, political situation also um, in, in Turkey's Kurdish regions. So uh, broadly speaking, that's a little bit the direction that I'm going into. Well, Marlena, thank you so much for... Uh, being here and talking about your wonderful book. Thank you so much. Um, It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Um, Hopefully we can meet again. Yes. (laughs) To talk about your next book. (laughs) Definitely.